Our final week, we finally get to finish the creed today. We get to say the entire creed in its fullness all the way to our last phrase. Last week we had the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. And now, the li- and the life everlasting, amen. That's the last part, and the life everlasting, amen. You wanna try it? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Wonderful. Wow. What what, what, what a journey we've taken to get to this point. The word amen, of course, is a Hebrew word. Uh, Hebrew works in in root letters, so the the letters A-M-N roughly mean that something is established or firm. And so when you say amen, you're saying, in a sense, let it be established or let it be affirmed or that you affirm the thing. That's the last word of our creed. I've struggled these past few weeks, at least in my judgment of myself, to present a really clear and compelling picture of the Christian life of belief and faith based on the New Testament. Why shouldn't I be better at doing this? Maybe, Um, but here's a problem. It's not an excuse for any of my poor teaching tactics for sure, I think, but just a fact. It's really hard to summarize all of the meaning that Christians have poured into and found in the Gospels, in Jesus, in the writings of Paul, and all that in a few short weeks, such that we have in the semester. It just can't be done in a serious way. What we can try to do, at least what I've tried to do in my own approach, has been to open some doors, maybe even just crack them open just a little bit, you know, so that you can feel empowered um, with some reading of the Bible, some meeting with others, some hearing some things, some background, some encouragement, some knowledge that can carry you forward into what I hope for all of you is a next phase of exploration. I realize that for some of you, that next phase for exploration is just humming right along in your Christian life, your church identity, and all of that. For some of you, the next phase of exploration might be like, wow, I just read the Bible or parts of it for the first time, and I sort of was a Christian, or I'm not sure, and I don't know, like I think, uh, you know, I don't know, this means something to me now, and now I'm saddled down with this information, what am I supposed to do? For some of you, it might mean like, you know, wow, you know, finally, this is what Christianity is. I know for sure now that I don't want to be a part of it. Okay. But your spiritual life isn't over if that's you, you know, if you've drifted far from faith. Not at all. Um, I'll tell you a story about that in a second. Um, There's just much that we can't accomplish now. So I'm, I guess as a professor, I'm kind of feeling the burn. I'm feeling the burn of the limits of what it is that we can really do in a course like this. Um, I hope you're feeling those limits too. You should be feeling those limits. If you're not feeling those limits, you don't have a big enough vision for what this all is. The best encounters, I think, that we have with God and scripture come in so many ways, in actions, in relationships with others, in prayer, silence, moments of struggle. Sometimes we find ourselves living scripture in a way that takes us, I think, closer to the meaning of of the text in ways that we could never achieve by just talking about it or by just reading, okay? 
When I was in graduate school, um, I had been married for about, uh, I think like six, five or six years at that point. My wife and I had been pastors at a church. We were co-youth and associate ministers at a church in Missouri, of all things, not where either of us grew up. And I think we'd come out of a, a time in our lives when, you know, we were just kind of burned out. Burned out on church, burned out on God, burned out on reading. I had already done my master's degree at that point. My wife did two master's degrees. She was ready to work and just live life. I was starting yet another round of school. It all just felt like a lot. Um, and I, I joined a trip with my, with, my, with my school, with my PhD program to go and do an archeological excavation in Israel, which is my first time to Israel. I was so excited. And it was at a place called Ashkelon, which is on the Mediterranean Sea. And um, I don't know, I think I, I think I came there after my first year of my PhD program, just like angry. I was just burned out, you know. Um, the expectations that other people have of you in school and in life sometimes just feel like too much, frankly. They felt like too much for me at that point, I'll tell you. I felt like a constant failure. Like everything I studied and did, no matter how good it was, it just was never enough. A lot of it was self-imposed pressure. It wasn't that people were like bullying me in my graduate program. It's just, you know, it's just that feeling that you get. I had things that I wanted in my life. I wanted to finish that program and be a professor and live my life, but just felt like it was very far away. And doing the archeological excavation was like not anything like I thought. I thought archeology, span honestly, at that point, I thought it would kind of, I mean, not quite this way, but almost. Like I kind of thought it would be kind of like Indiana Jones-ish, you know? <laughs> like I thought we'd be running around in caves with pistols and things, at least, at the very least, with whips and stuff and gold. There would probably be gold. It turns out that archaeology isn't like that at all, you know. I mean, a lot of this parable has to do, I think, with growing up in the life of faith. You know, we imagine the life of faith, like these heroic moments when you'll definitely do the right thing and be the right kind of person, and you'll know everything. You'll know just that thing to say to your little child, and you'll lead them to faith, and everything will be beautiful, and, you know. And what it really ends up being like, what archaeology was like, actually, I'll tell you, if you've never done an archaeological excavation, it's kind of like waking up at three in the morning, and having like tools, almost like little brushes and trowels, like you're a gardener, and it's kind of like cleaning the ground. You're like cleaning, like brushing the dirt, <laughs> and just like these very subtle layers of things. There was no gold, there was nothing like that. But in an environment like that, where you're waking up that early, and with your, when you're with a bunch of other people who are kind of in your situation doing something like that, I don't know, there are a lot of like, there's just a lot of hilarity. There's a lot of like 4 a.m. jokes that are like only funny if you're there and it's 4 a.m., you know, and you're just, and I think as this, as this excavation went on, something in my soul kind of just loosened up a little bit. And one day we went down to the Mediterranean Sea to swim. It was so beautiful. It was like bath water. It was just gorgeous. And we'd gone several times. But on this particular day, toward the end of the trip, um, it was very windy. It was what was called there on the beach a black flag day, which black flag means do not swim, do not go out. There are like 14 foot waves, like you will die. Like don't go out there. But like me and my friends, we were just like, yeah, we're definitely going out there. And there were other people, you know, that were out there too. So it wasn't like just us, but they were like, don't go out. The lifeguard will not save you. And we were just kind of bobbing up and down, probably in about 10 feet of water with these waves crashing. It was super fun. It was kind of dangerous, so it felt exciting. And there was this guy way out there, way out there in a kayak, just like struggling hard in his kayak. <laughs> and he was tossed. I could see he was tossed from his kayak. This was maybe like 50 yards away. And he was like flailing. And his kayak started to get like tossed into shore. And I'm like treading water in 10 feet of water. And I thought to myself, huh, here's what I will do. I will catch his kayak and I will swim it back out to him 
because he's struggling clearly and here I am. And I, you know, I wasn't super close to him, but I wasn't far away. And the kayak was coming faster and faster, just carried on these waves. And the kayak was on the wave in front of me and I saw it coming. It was this yellow kayak and it came and it, I suddenly realized that it, the kayak was really big. And I suddenly realized that kayaks are really heavy. And the kayak smashed me in the head, <laughs> like in the water and knocked me out in the water, in the ocean, in 10 feet of water. And I was kind of like, I don't know whether it was like one second or like 15 seconds or like some indeterminate amount of time. I remember like a vague green color, just like all around. And I just, the wave kind of rolled and I rolled up and I just kind of came up out of the water. And I was like near the shore and it like brought me in another wave and I saw the kayak was like already up on the shore. I actually, I never knew what happened to the guy. I, he, did he live? Did he die? I have no idea. And I washed up on the shore and I just kind of let my body just go kind of limp. Did you ever do that in, in the waves? Just kind of let your body just go limp and let it kind of lap up. And I thought to myself, yeah, this is probably what it feels like to be a piece of driftwood <laughs> that just like washes up on the shore, you know? And then another thought came to me, almost just like a vision. Not really like a vision, but it felt kind of mystical. It changed my whole, it changed my whole mind. It changed my whole self. I thought to myself, oh, this is what it feels like to be Jonah spit up out of a whale and tossed up on the shore in the very place, maybe in this exact spot. Story of Jonah, of course, in the Bible, we didn't really cover it with, with much depth. We talked about it, but he's a prophet who's sent by God to go to the Assyrian Empire. Do you remember the Assyrians? And the Assyrians are like this hateful group, you know, in the ancient world. And Jonah doesn't want to go. And so he runs away. Turns out he doesn't want to go, not because he's just running from God, God's call on his life, you know. It turns out he, he thinks the Assyrians are horrible, horrible people and Jonah wants God to kill them, but he fears that if he's a prophet, God will send him there, he'll preach to them, they'll repent and God will forgive them and he actually wants God to kill them. So he's running for that reason, it's kind of strange. But the book of Jonah kind of, you know, so he gets swallowed by a whale, he gets thrown over in a shipwreck, swallowed by a whale, spit up on the shore, then he goes back to, then he goes to Nineveh, to Assyria, then he preaches to them, then he does, rep then they do repent. You know, and this is kind of how the story goes. Um, Jesus even cites the story of Jonah as a kind of allegory or typology or something like that for the resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be killed and be in the earth and so on. And so it becomes, Jonah, even in his, his comedy and his folly, his racism, he becomes a kind of forerunner of Jesus and of Jesus' own journey down and up. The Christian life is always kind of about this. You go down, you come up. It's one of these patterns that you've seen a lot of literature and it's just kind of there. You die, you live. You experience disorientation. You come up and you have a new orientation, a resurrection. And seeing myself as Jonah at that moment, you know, just kind of fell into the broad, I guess, Christian pattern of like reading Jonah, interpreting Jonah as a story of like running from God. Was I really running from God in that phase of my life? I don't know if I was really running from God. I felt far from God, that was for sure, I think. I just, you know, my wife and I were struggling to find a church. We were struggling to find our feet, I think, after working in a church for so many years. It just all felt kind of like drab. But in that moment, feeling like Jonah, feeling like I was like participating somehow, not just like in my mind, right? Like with, you know, my hopes and my dreams or my prayers, but like in my very body, like living out a biblical story in that moment that I made for myself that just happened to me. It was like scripture didn't just get illuminated or come alive. I was like living it, like mystically. And my life really actually changed after that moment. I had a kind of a freedom spiritually and in my mind that I just didn't have before. I can't really explain it. 
and we found a church and we got connected in ways that we hadn't been before after this trip. Maybe it was just the trip and being away. Maybe it was this experience with God on that beach, just seeing myself and feeling myself caught in a sense. It changed my life, not just my abstract beliefs about X, Y, Z. I don't think that, you know, you get to pre-plan or script moments like that. I've found personally in my life of faith that much of what has been meaningful to me have been things that have just happened to me by God's grace of meaning. And I don't mean to discount things that we choose to do, a lot of choices involved in life, tons and tons of choices. I've just found spiritually that when it comes down to it, I just haven't been able to like will things to happen, just make it happen. Like, oh, you just gotta do this, you know? And I guess I brought up this idea several times, I, either in parody or in uh, maybe sarcastically or in other ways, just to suggest that this isn't what the life of faith is about. Like sitting down and just being like, okay, I have, I, I just, you know, I know I'm supposed to believe this thing. I should just, I have to will myself to believe it. I just, uh, you know, and you just have to like somehow come to this like pure mental state. I can tell you I was in no pure mental state out there in the Mediterranean Sea, okay? <laughs> no pure mental state at all. But something happened to me there and I was receptive to what God was saying to me. The life of faith feels more like that to me, it has. W what we can do certainly is to read and to be in community with others. I mean, that story of Jonah actually had to have been somewhere in my soul to make sense to me, right? Like I had to have read that and ingested that and have had that as a resource for, that, for God to even work with that in my life. And so I think doing what we do in a class like this, reading, listening, is like just developing those raw materials. It is not the objective itself just to read something or to hear something, right? But the objective is to have that as a template in your soul so that you live the life. You actually become Abram, who is called from your home. You become Sarah, who is barren and then has a child. You become the characters. Like in that moment, that is when I think you're living the life and doing living the Bible in a sense. Christians don't really read the Bible so much or interpret the Bible as we live the Bible. And if you can't live it, if you don't live it, if you're not ready to live it, you can't just read it or think something about it and that substitutes for living it. It doesn't really, it hasn't worked that way for me. Like that's not my pattern in my life. You can be in community with people. You can have the story as a template. You can get that. You can pray and you can wait. And there's a limit to what you can control and what you can make reality for yourself, in my experience. Even so, for our remaining time today, let's talk more about the Bible. What I'll offer, I hope, is a kind of a lively little grab bag of a couple of issues we haven't gotten to yet, culminating in the book of Revelation. All, as usual, by way of preparing you for this week's reading a little bit. And we'll loop back to some materials that I had hoped to cover in the previous two weeks and we just didn't get a chance to mention. Okay, how about this? From the creed and the life everlasting. What is this life everlasting? How does it work? What does the Bible say about it? I turn to 1 Thessalonians, a passage I'd meant to read previously, but now I'm finally here. I'm finally reading this passage. I've had queued up for a couple of weeks. It's not, you know, not, maybe not the most transformative passage in the world, but I want you to notice something about it. This is the Apostle Paul. This is maybe the earliest letter that Paul wrote. And in this letter, he's talking about all kinds of things. In particular, he's speaking with a lot of urgency to a community that expects, as the early church apparently did, that expects Jesus to return to the earth any day, any minute. That's an expectation, the idea that Jesus will return, that gets weirder, in a sense, for the church living in our time because it's been, you know, a while. It's been a long time. 
Although you could say, well, it hasn't been a long time for God. And in fact, Paul says something like that in one of his letters, like, you know, a day is like a thousand years. So what, you know? So what if you have to wait? Wait for it. The expectation that Jesus didn't just live his life and die and, and, and return to heaven, but that in fact, Jesus is returning to the earth. And we live life almost like those who are waiting for that return. Like you're waiting for like the boss to kind of come and check on your job to see how you've done. This is how early Christians live. Listen to what Paul says about this this kind of moment of Jesus' return or this moment of, of death for us even and the life everlasting. This is in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Happy Easter, there it is, right? We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Some weird wording in there, like fallen asleep in him, God will bring. What what does this mean? According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. I think fallen asleep here is a kind of a, a euphemism for death. But it's not like permanent for Christians. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Resurrection of the dead. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, Paul says. So, so there's an acknowledgement of death, right? Death is real, but it's almost like a kind of falling asleep, he says. And there's a kind of a Christian grief around death that is maybe not like other kinds of grief. We do not grieve, Paul says, like people who have no hope that there's some other reality, that there's another, that there's another phase to this whole thing. We are, in a sense, to echo some words from C.S. Lewis famously, we're immortal. You've never seen another person, C.S. Lewis says, that is immortal, that is not just a little bit lower than a god in a, in a way. We're going somewhere, okay? This is happening. Paul says, you know, so when we die, grieve, but not like, not like someone who's just like totally out of control, hopeless. It's a different kind of grieving. It's something else because there's this life everlasting. There's something else. He talks about being resurrected and he talks about even people being alive when the Lord comes who will be caught up with him in the air. What in the world does that look like? You know, just like, like, do you fly, you know? Is it just like instantaneous? He doesn't say, and there's no other place in scripture that does say. Scripture does not get any more specific about the second coming of Jesus than that. Yes, I know there's a book called Revelation at the end that has all kinds of cryptic, mystical, apocalyptic stuff, but you know, if you think you've got that figured out, good luck, you know? Op- you know make a website and start a church and tell us all how it's gonna happen. You know, we, we, we don't have enough of that in the world, right? Um, it's a mystical event. It's not, it's, it's not really specified. What's resurrection like? What's my body going to be like? In the panel from last Friday, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it, one of the panelists there was like, yeah, the bodily resurrection, it seems kind of weird. It's like, where does our body go? Like, where do we go? Are we going to be like on Mars or on another planet or is it going to be on this earth? We're not told. I mean, a lot of the Christian life is like this. And I know for some of us who, who have like very deep, good, rational capacities, you know, to want to know those things is super, is natural to want to know. Like, you're not weird for wanting to know that. That's normal. It's just the working of your brain. You deserve to be able to explore that and think about that. 
But just like warning from the start, there are limits to this kind of stuff. And scripture has limits to this. I can only assume that what we're given is what God intends to give us in that sense. There's a lot that we just don't know. He just says we'll be caught up in the air and Jesus will come. When is Jesus going to come? Where is the air? Where am I being caught up? What is that supposed to mean? He doesn't say, right? If he knew what it meant, why didn't he just say it? I mean, these books are long. Have you ever noticed while reading the Bible, you're like, gosh, this is so long. They just say so many things. I know, just how about another paragraph of like explanation? You know, that'd be pretty easy for God. I don't know, the Holy Spirit who inspires scripture. Like, can you just add another paragraph of specificity if you wanted us to have that? It's not there. So as a Christian, I guess I can only take certain cues from that. We'll be caught up in the air. There's some event we're waiting for. Christians are looking forward. We're moving through history. We're pointed towards something. We're moving towards something and not just our death. What does heaven look like? What is heaven supposed to be like? Does it help to like visualize heaven in some way? The book of Revelation, as I think you'll see in parts of your reading for this week, does visualize heaven, I guess you could say in a sense, with streets of gold and with beautiful trees and things like that. I, you know, can I tell you a secret? Maybe God will punish me for saying this, but like I find the image of streets of gold to be very uninspiring. <laughs> like, I don't know, like gold, like really, that's the best God can come up with, some gold? Like gold is like stuff that we all have, you know, in our lives here down on earth. Like he's gonna pave the streets with gold. Couldn't we think of like some God-like material that's better than gold? Well, I think the secret here for people like me is like, yeah, it's an image. It's a metaphor, right? I guess if we're all surprised and we make it to heaven and like, wow, the streets are literally paved with literal human gold. I guess that would be, we'll have to accept that and rejoice in it. Maybe it'll be super beautiful. But don't be shocked either, you know, if we make it there and like a lot of this stuff is like an image for something else, something inexpressible, something that can't just be said in human words quite like that, right? Okay. So we're left with images. We're left with mystery. We're not really told what we're going to do in heaven, you know? You can imagine things that you could do for billions or trillions of years. Some people have been terrified of, of, uh, of the idea of heaven, just like the boredom of it. It's just hard with a human mind to even imagine what an eternity would be like. I suppose if it's with God, it just should be good. But like, how good? What exactly? And there's a kind of terror of the afterlife, even though I think we see in contemporary culture. Have you, have you, have you all ever seen episodes of the show Black Mirror? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of afterlife terror in Black Mirror that you see in a lot of the episodes. Like fear of a kind of AI or, or kind of machine-like afterlife or an afterlife where, or in the, the Netflix show, Russian Doll, there's a kind of fear of the afterlife idea that you'll get to this point and you'll die, but like the afterlife is something actually terrifying, something that you can't handle or deal with, something that you actually wouldn't even want maybe. Maybe this is just what we come up with when we're left to our boredom, you know, and, and terror at, at elements like this. And then, of course, hell. I mean, what about hell? In the Christian vision, it's not really stated in the creed. Um, but notably, I mean, I don't know what to make of it. The creed doesn't have an elaborate statement about hell, that you must believe in it or that it's an important part of faith. Um, Jesus talks about, you know, sheep and goats and a great dividing out. The book of Revelation certainly speaks of a very bad place. And one tenet of Christian thought is that not just anyone will be with the Lord. Of course, some Christians have embraced, a minority of Christians, I should say, have embraced an idea of universal salvation, that God will just gather up everything to himself at some point. Because there are philosophical problems about hell that people have debated, and you can continue to think about them as students and as, as humans. Like, is it really fair, like even on any standard of justice, for God to punish people, like burning their faces in fire forever for sins committed during a uh, my, uh, you know, a relatively circumscribed period of time on earth, maybe 80 years, maybe 20 years. 
I mean, fine, if I'm a horrible sinner, which I definitely am, and I die at age 90, give me 90 years of like, you know, burning in a fire and total torture. Give me 180 years. Give me 200 years. Give me, give me a thousand years of like burning my face off for my stupid misdeeds, which I definitely have committed. But like a trillion years, an eternity of years, you know, so it raises questions like, really? And like, if you're in heaven, do you get to know that people who are in hell are being suffered? And you're just like, ah, I guess my brother is getting what he deserves now. You know, like, is that what you do? Or is it like something else? Does God, does God like wipe your mind clean of what's happening? Now we're getting like into the black mirror, like terror kind of episode idea of the afterlife. Something very different from what I think most Christians imagine. So I'm just admitting, I guess, in front of you that I, I think these topics are tough topics to think about rationally like that. It's hard to rationalize it that way. I mean, maybe the best way that I can rationalize a belief like hell for myself is thinking like, look, you look around in the world, there have been horrible, horrible things done. People have been abused. Children have been murdered. I mean, you got to get really dark with this, right? Are you supposed to just think like in a minute, God's just going to be like, oh, ha, 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 all that stuff, that didn't matter. Just come on, let's just have a big bear hug. Let's just hug it out. Here's the abused person. Here's your abuser. Hug it out. You know, like, is that, you know, like, ha, that doesn't seem right either though, right? Like, that seems wrong. Seems weird that like this life wouldn't mean anything, like what we do. So for me, if you want to take a rational approach to hell and thinking, I would start on a road like that and see kind of where that takes you. That kind of approach does make sense to me. And the notion of hell makes sense to me on that basis. How long it lasts and all these other details and how people are tortured and when and why and if you get to know about it in heaven or not. And I don't know. I don't think anybody knows that. And scripture doesn't give us really long, lurid kind of descriptions of this kind of thing. Okay. Let's move on to the book of Hebrews. A famous definition of faith that I want to read out to us. What is faith? I mean, isn't faith the goal of all this? We're supposed to have faith in Jesus. Believe, is faith the same as belief? We started off, in fact, our whole uh, journey here with that question, what is belief exactly? What is knowledge? What is faith? Book of Hebrews, which I have you reading some chapters from, has a famous definition of this in chapter 11. Book of Hebrews is a very complex book, a deeply Jewish frame for the book. Probably a Jewish author giving a synagogue address or a Jewish sermon to other Jews with imagery that would make sense to them. And the author, we don't even know who the author is. Traditionally, it's Paul, but a lot of the language and imagery is not very Pauline in a sense. And the book doesn't actually say it's written by Paul. And so you're kind of left in the dark. Let's just say it's anonymous. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Think about that. I mean, you could dwell on that for a long time. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. We hope for things. We have a certain kind of confidence in what we hope for. It's not here now. It's not certainty. I don't have it with me, but I have a kind of confidence in these things I hope for. And it's assurance about what we do not see. We don't see it. Faith is not sight in the Christian vision. You cannot claim as a Christian, there is no veil between me and truth. My thoughts are just true. Here's just the truth and I just know it perfectly. That would be sight, I guess, in this metaphor. That's just perfect seeing. You do not see perfectly. You do not. Your church does not see perfectly. It does not. It cannot. Not according to the many, many images of faith that we see from Abraham and Sarah on through to this great chapter, okay? You kind of, you know, it's like, Abra it's like Abraham and Sarah. Hey, go to this place. Why would I go to this place? I don't know where that is. I don't know. There's like some confidence there that where, where he and she are going is real. 
there's some assurance that those things that we can't see, that house you'll live in in the future, the child they will have, the life they will live, that it really is real without seeing. How do you do that? He says, this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that, is, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. We can do the science thing, you know. You remember our creator of heaven and earth panel with the scientists talking about, you know, I mean, he was doing that the best he could rationally. But it's by faith that we understand these things, not in any other way. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Not just like a stranger in a foreign country. He was a stranger in a literal foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He's saying these people are living in tents. They're movable. They're moving like God in the tabernacle. This is not a set thing. They haven't arrived at the city. This is not the city. It's a different city. It's another place. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Still living. Faith is not a one-time act here in the book of Hebrews. It's something that we do our whole lives, like Abraham and Sarah do in the book of Genesis and like these other characters do. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. By faith, Isaac did this and that. By Jacob, he, Jacob did what he did. By faith, Moses' parents hid him in the reeds and did all what they did. Okay? Therefore, chapter 12. Oh no, I want to back up. By faith, all these characters in the book of Judges and David and Samuel did what they did. By faith, the prophets did what they did. Women received back their dead, raised to life. There were others who were tortured, refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. What is that supposed to mean, a better resurrection? Like there are gradations to the resurrection? Not explained. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. We recall here just yesterday, hundreds of Christians were killed in terrorist bombings. Of course, it doesn't just happen to Christians, but many others. But there's a special place in early Christian literature for those who die in faith for those who die defending the faith or committing acts of faith. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They, uh, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them, the author says, received what had been promised to them. Not in this life. They didn't get it. They weren't there. So we won't be surprised. I won't be too disheartened, as I, as, I, as I often am, as I even was this Easter weekend in my own soul. I won't be too disheartened that I have not arrived yet. I won't be too disheartened, according to this book. I shouldn't be. I, I can't be. I must be encouraged that I have not arrived at that final city, that final place of rest and comfort, because it's not here to be found. 
Therefore, 12.1, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, communion of the saints, there we are, there's that idea. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Okay? We don't arrive at the place, but we're on our way. We're like travelers in this metaphor. We're like travelers who live in tents. We're kind of like backpackers. You know, like we carry our stuff with us. We might lose it. We might lose the people around us, but there's something else, something down the road that we're going toward. So that's this wonderful definition of faith from Hebrews. Let's, let's, um, let's flash over to the book of James. The book of James has, has, has some really famous passages in it because they're very, the, book, the book of James and the author of James, presumably James, Jesus' own brother, is very, very insistent that faith is something, this, this great faith that we're talking about, it's something that we actually do. And in fact, the book of Hebrews had, I think, a cue to that, talking about all the things that these characters actually did. Not something just that they believed, but something that they acted on. The book of James chapter uh, 2 has some famous words on this, particularly the second half of the chapter. The author there says, uh, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it? I mean, listen to these words. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. See, I guess, you know, we can work it all out. You have, you know, you do it your way, I'll do it mine. That's my commentary. Here's the, the book. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. So he kind of rounds this out with more words and examples. I mean, that's a rather stunning statement, isn't it? So even if you got in the Bible, if you were reading it like a novel and you got to that point, you're like, okay, I guess Jesus was resurrected. I mean, I know, I bring this up so strongly because I suspect, I could be wrong, I could be just flinging arrows at targets that don't even exist here. But I think many of us, in the kind of context we, a lot of us probably have grown up in, we've kind of come as, I think in a childlike way, in a childish way, to think of faith as something very different from what scripture seems to say it is. Scriptural faith, at least as you can see, at least as I can gather in these, even in these snippets I'm reading, is something like very rich. It's something mystical. It's something that you act out through your life. But somehow there's also this other idea that faith is like, again, this idea of mental ascent. I will, or maybe I will pray a prayer, almost like a kind of a magic prayer. Oh God, I believe that you're real, I guess, or you're real, and that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that, amen. Okay, I did it. 
I've, I've, I've stepped over the line and now I'm going to heaven. And I guess now my life is just kind of like this long, I don't know, what is your life then? Just like a, a thing that you do, you know? This is a very, it's a pretty weak view of faith. It was definitely my view of faith when I was in, you know, middle school, high school, maybe even college to some extent. What I read in scripture here in passages like this, though, are the authors saying, oh, no, no, if you got this far and you think that that's what this is, you are wrong. It's not. You can't, you know, it, it doesn't work like that. These authors are talking about providing food and clothing to people around you. They're talking about the law, which I guess still exists for James to be obeyed and to, to, to show us how to live and what's right. The author of Hebrews is talking about people who hear God's voice in their lives and change who they are and what they do, what they study in college, whom they're around, how they choose to orient their lives. I mean, that's a big deal, you know? That's something you have to believe with your mind and your heart. Yes, the author is saying, I think, clearly. But it's something you actually have to act on. We can look also at examples of Christian ethics. It would be fun to just read or reread. I won't, I won't have time to go into this because I want to just spend at least three or four minutes talking about the book of Revelation just to prepare you for that reading of that strange book. But I mean, re- go back. If you want to know like Christian life, what am I supposed to do? How do I know what to do? Go back and read. I think I assigned this a couple weeks ago. We didn't have time to talk about it. First Corinthians chapters seven and eight. You want to talk about sex? He's going to talk about sex. You want to talk about marriage? He's going to talk about marriage. You want to talk about just like what to do in ambiguous situations in life. He uses the example of food sacrifice to idols. Like if you're living in a pagan society in, in non-Christian Rome and people are doing sacrifices to all kinds of gods but they have leftover meat, they don't just throw that meat away. You sell it in markets. And some Christians were like, you just sacrificed that meat to like a fake god, an idol, and now you want me to buy that and eat that? No way, I don't do that. Some Christians were like, why wouldn't I eat it? Of course, you know, those gods aren't even real. They're fake. People can do what they want. It's all, all, all the world is gods. You know, these animals are gods. It belongs to us. Paul has a suggestion for people in those kind of disputes. He just says, just, you know, basically give way to, to your fellow Christians. Like, don't do anything that would cause other people to sin or, or to think bad thoughts about you, you know? If someone's offended by that kind of meat sacrifice eating, like, don't do it in front of them. You know, just like go with it. There's a tremendous amount of freedom in something like that, actually. The New Testament ends not with a new law code in a way, not with like another Torah with like 650 laws for people, but it ends with a series of letters and very flexible instructions to small communities about how they'll live their life. I mean, think about that as you read in just in terms of the genre of the Bible, that this is where the story goes, out into the world, into mission, and into, very, in, into the very specific situations that we find ourselves living in. Now, the Bible ends with a stunning, soaring vision. And if you've never read parts of it before, you will for this week. I've assigned it to you. What is going on in this book? Um, you can read the textbook. I've tried there to explain some of the historical issues that lie behind the book of Revelation. Some of the things that were happening in the Roman Empire at this time. You had emperors like Nero and then later Domitian, who were like emperors that were not friendly to Christians. Did they murder millions and millions of of Christians? No. Did they murder thousands and thousands or hundreds and hundreds? No, probably not. But even a few martyrs are enough to impact a community in a serious way. I mean, think about what just happened in Sri Lanka on Easter. I mean, that that will impact you for the rest of your life. Think if a gunman came into your church and killed even two or five people or even one person. That would impact you for the rest of your life. So too, early Christianity didn't have major, major martyrdoms where like the blood was flowing in the streets with Christians. There's no historical evidence to support that anywhere, not in Rome and not anywhere else. 
And people have done a lot of studies on this and you can get into that if you want. But apparently there was an atmosphere of hostility and there were people imprisoned, including the author of this book, Revelation, was imprisoned on an island for some reason, he doesn't quite say why, presumably for his testimony about Jesus. He offers a vision of Jesus that is stunning and amazing. In fact, our word apocalypse comes from the Greek term apocalypsis. It's our Greek word for today, okay? Apocalypsis. Apocalypse means an unveiling, a removing of the veil of the blinders. What is the veil for the book of Revelation? In short, despite all the imagery, all the symbolism, whatever it could mean, Christians throughout history have come to many different conclusions about it. You can read it and think about it and come to your own as well. The book of Revelation definitely has one thing to say. To a world that thinks Jesus is dead, to a Roman Empire that crucified Jesus on a cross in a brutal way, the book of Revelation and its author says, nope, big nope. Jesus is in fact alive. Jesus is alive. And this world order we live in where we are so entangled in sin and wrongdoing and where it's difficult to even act, even to, in a way, the book even has an allusion to this idea of how difficult it is even to buy and sell things in the world today without becoming somehow implicated in sin and in the horrors of empire and of godlessness. The author says God is coming to judge that. The book of Revelation is not about the fate of like my individual soul. Like, oh, I hope I can be a Christian so that my individual soul will be saved. That kind of sounds to me like new age kind of religion, like a certain kind of, I don't know, spiritual hucksterism. Rather, the book of Revelation ends the Bible with a vision of God redeeming the entire world. And God has a victory over chaos. That is the stunning conclusion to the Bible and to a world depicted in the Bible like our own world, which is indeed full of chaos. God fights the dragon, the monster at the very end and tosses it down away and out of the picture forever. And the book ends like that with the redeemed with God, okay? Not, you know, is my, is my own soul kind of sucked up into that story and that narrative? Yes, that is the hope and faith that I have as a believer, as a Christian. But the story is not about that primarily. The story is about God. God is the main character of the Bible. And we go back to the very beginning at the very end. The Bible makes a little loop around. This is just a couple of, of, of verses from Revelation chapter 22 to close us out. Then the angel showed me, this is the author of the book, the river of the water of life. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Then they will see his face. Now we're back to the theme of seeing. Then they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will reign forever and ever. He who testifies to these things, I'm just skipping to the last couple of verses, says, yes, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. And that's how the Bible ends.